Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You need a doctor? We've got a doctor for you. Uh, with us uh, today today to kick off the show, back after an absence, but we've had him a bunch of times before and are always overjoyed to get him, is Dr. Vincent Racaniello. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia University, the co-host uh, of the podcast This Week in Virology and the co-author of one of the seminal textbooks on virology. He's not a clinician. He's not that kind of doctor, but he could probably get you an appointment with, appointment with Dr. Daniel Griffin, and that would be an appointment worth having. Um, so uh, he's back with us. We're going to sort of go over some of the questions people, lingering questions and dissatisfactions people have with the current state of understanding of the pandemic. Uh, so first of all, uh, Vincent Racaniello, welcome back. Hey, good to be back. Been a while. This has been a while. So, you know, I just want to begin with maybe sort of your your perspective on communication. I listened to This Week in Virology. I know a little bit uh, both from what you say and your tone of voice when you say it that you're, you know, <laughs> understandably unhappy with the communication. We should say that This Week in Virology, I think you're on episode 857 or something. It's been around way, way, way before the pandemic. But and it really existed primarily in its infancy as a way of scientists being able to talk to one another, scientists, clinicians, related professions. But now you're in a different role, I think, and you have people like me who don't really know anything listening to this, you know, Science 404 uh, conversation with you and your your colleagues. And But one of the things you talk about a lot is is communication, how the mass media reports this stuff, how the CDC and the World Health Organization reports this stuff. And I don't know. I know you're frustrated with it, but now are you frustrated with that in specific ways? I'm glad you caught the tone of my voice because I am frustrated. I mean, first of all, I think we provide accurate 
information and a lot of it. We do three episodes a week. Yet, uh, we don't have millions of listeners. You know, we have 100,000 or so. And, you know, there are other shows that peddle nonsense and they get millions of listeners. So I'm really frustrated. I don't understand that. Um, but I am frustrated with mass media because they take anything that someone tells them, a supposed ep- expert, and they make big news out of it. And I think the way science works is that you have to be very patient. So when Omicron emerged, for example, they were already saying in that first week, it's more transmissible, it's less virulent. And these are not things you can find out so quickly. And we're still finding them out. And so I'm frustrated because mass media, I understand, has to make a living. And the way they do so is to scare people and get them to listen to them. But that's not how science works. We do science and, you know, we have great listeners, but... I don't know how to get people to come and listen more to us. I know it's complicated and get the real story rather than the drama. Yeah, I would. I have to say, listening to TWIV, that's This Week in Virology, you know, if the stakes weren't so high, it would just be just so fascinating and fun to listen to you guys try to figure these things out in real time. This is not really ideally how science works with these incredibly tight deadlines. Mm-hmm. Figure this out in the next six weeks or a lot of people are going to die. That's not really a good way to do research, but there isn't a lot of choice about it. So, yeah, listening to you guys try to figure out, for, to use the example you just cited with Omicron, is it really more transmissible or is it more immune evasive? Like what, what is the defining characteristic of this variant? And listening to you go through some Danish study of secondary attack rates and stuff, it's really, really interesting, except you realize if, if we don't figure it out correctly, the, the consequences are very dire. I'm not sure that's, that's true. I think throughout this pandemic, no matter which variant has emerged, the fundamentals have always worked. Distancing, face masking, and most importantly, vaccination. It's not changed with any variant, and I don't see it changing. So I'm not sure why we need to get this information about every variant out there, because it doesn't really change the way we deal with the pandemic. That's absolutely true. But on the other hand, sort of uh, pulling back a little bit from individual variants, I'll give you my perspective as a journalist who has very conscientiously tried to understand this and try to understand it in its evolving form. And, and, and not only as a journalist, but I mean, I'm, I have a person very close to me in my family who's severely immunosuppressed. I don't want to get this wrong in my own life either. Um, so just as an example, I, I think, well, actually, SIDRAP, the Osterholm group up there in Minnesota or wherever they are, they, they just put out a report pretty recently on, uh, on respiratory transmission. And they start by saying that both the CDC and the World Health Organization took a long time to convert their own understanding and messaging from large droplet transmission to aerosols. And, and, and that correspondingly, a lot of the advice that people have gotten has been very, very slow to catch up with the notion that it's smaller particles that hang in the air longer. Maybe we should be talking a lot more about ventilation than we have been. Uh, maybe we should be you know, really focusing a lot more, as we are lately, on getting good-fitting N95 masks. But, you know, that's that's an example, I think, of the two agencies that people depend on a lot. It's, they seem to very, be very slow making a course correction. But I'd love your reaction to that. Well, I I have to tell you, I don't, don't particularly agree on this transmission droplet aerosol business. I mm. mean, look, in Asia, people have worn surgical masks, cloth masks, 
for years, and they do a really good job at tamping down respiratory transmission. And even though we wore, a lot of us wore cloth masks, look what happened to influenza. Zero, almost mm-hmm. zero. So they're good enough. I don't, I don't buy the latest, uh, by the, by the uh, CDC saying you need to wear uh, a surgical mask or a 95 or a KN95 cloth doesn't work. I've been using cloth the whole outbreak and it's fine. I got to tell you, and I'm, I know I'm just an N of one. However, your question was different. And I'm sorry. Uh, yes, the CDC and the WHO are slow uh, with their messaging. They often get it wrong at the beginning. They didn't even tell us to wear masks, right? right. They said, save them for the healthcare workers. Uh, I don't think that's a good message. And then when they changed, they didn't apologize. And I think they should have because that would have gotten more people on board. Because if you make a mistake, you ought to admit it and not try and dance around it. So they're in a tough position. I realize that. But over and over, and particularly CDC, has botched many aspects of communication. They've gotten things wrong. One of the main ones I remember was the Provincetown study that they pushed, which, you know, they had said, don't wear masks anymore back in May. Mm -hmm. And then this Provincetown a study came out, which was really flawed, and they decided based on that they should use masks. So I think they make decisions too quickly that are not based on data or not the right data. And I think that's a big problem. And people will lose confidence in them if they continue to do that. And we're not hesitant to call it out. People tell us, oh, you should not criticize them. You know, they're the health leaders. I said, well, no, people need to realize what they're doing wrong. Right. There's a huge risk in criticizing them because the stuff that the criticisms, criticisms we direct at them can be repurposed and misused by people who are anti-scientific or anti-vax and stuff like that. So you do it at your peril and with great misgivings, but sometimes you have to do it. You know, as long as you mentioned the province, Dan, I think I heard you and Dr. Griffin talking about this a few weeks ago. And um, for me, the the scare of the province down, because I do have somebody who's has a bloodborne cancer uh, in my family. He's therefore very, very compromised mm-hmm. and at times doesn't even really have a functioning immune system. And so one of the things that seemed to come out of Provincetown was this notion that somebody like me, I'm twice vaccinated and then boosted. I got my booster October 16th. Um, I, I might still be a carrier. I might still be uh, a transmitter. I could conceivably on an asymptomatic basis walk into a room with this younger person and 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 transmit to them. Uh, and and I've been trying to sort out like how real that is, or it sounded like you and Dr. Griffin were th- were saying, yeah, but twice vaccinated and boosted and reasonably healthy. I mean, it might be 24 hours that that I'm I'm communicable that way. But maybe you could just throw your current light of thinking on it. So the original Provincetown study had done PCR on a whole bunch of people, and they concluded that based on one swab, one nasal swab, that vaccinated or not you shed the same amount of RNA as determined by PCR, right? And they said, this is scary, so we're going to say, go go wear masks even if you're vaccinated. Well, since then, we have learned, and then there was the Singapore study published about the same time, which did a series of time points, which showed there's a big difference in vaccinated and unvaccinated people because you start to reduce the amount of RNA you're shedding very quickly after infection within a day or two, as you just mentioned. And more importantly, the recent study out of Switzerland that we discussed on TWIV shows that there's virtually no correlation between RNA levels and infectious virus levels. So you cannot take a PCR result and say someone is infectious or not. So we are left at this point having only that Swiss study. It's the only one in two years of this pandemic 
to measure infectious virus shedding. I think this is a crime, frankly, yeah. that people are still using PCR when it doesn't tell you anything except you're infected or not. We still don't know how long you're shedding infectious virus and how much. It could be that it's very little and it's not enough to infect anyone. But we just don't know the answer to that. I wanted to ask you your current thinking about another topic, uh, and that is natural immunity. I, I assume that's an acceptable term for people who have had COVID and maybe had COVID pretty recently. And because of Omicron and, and how fast it spread, you know, we've got this huge new cohort of I don't know, like 18 million people got it in six weeks or something uh, coming on board. And they want to know, I think, how that affects their their immunity. Um, you know, what's natural immunity like compared to vaccine-acquired uh, immunity? Um, and and do they have to think about getting a booster soon? Or are they going to be okay? Uh, you guys have talked about this uh, a lot. And, and we should say that it does appear that, although we're waiting for preprints, that Omicron may be a little bit different this way from, from Delta. I mean, one of the prevailing questions is, Earlier, pre-Omicron, it seemed as though if you got a milder, symptomatically milder case of COVID, you probably produced a less robust immunity. But with Omicron, that's less clear. And anyway, since Omicron seems to be somehow resulting in milder cases, you know, how does that affect their natural immunity? Okay, I just asked you like six questions all at once. But <laughs> it's do, okay. Do, I'm do, keeping do, track do, in my do, head. Do, well, do, you know, do every, whatever you want. Every person I, I bring out the TWIV, I ask that same question. The last one was... Alessandro said that. So that is natural immunity compared to vaccine-induced. And I get a slightly different answer from different people. He said, which is something I've heard for quite a while, is natural immunity, it can be very good, but it's heterogeneous. In other words, some people can respond better than others, mm -hmm. maybe because they have a different infection, maybe because, you know, our immune systems are all different. We're an outbred population. So we're not all going to respond the same way, but the same goes for vaccines as well. Um, I would say the one study, the, the several studies I've seen are very convincing, say that if you're infected and recover, then you get one shot of vaccine. You have incredible immunity, perhaps better than people who are just vaccinated. So the combination of recovery from an infection and a vaccination seems to be particularly good. Now, that being said, I think recovering from infection could easily make you as immune as anything else you could do, but we just don't know. You know, when we give you a vaccine, we put into your arm a certain volume at a certain time, and we know it's there. If you just show up with a PCR positive, we don't really know anything about your infection and what kind of immunity it gave, and we don't know how to measure that right now. So those, those are the reasons why it's more suspect. So uh, I want to just come back to something you said in the midst of that answer, which is that, that yes, obviously people's immune systems respond differently to, uh, to, to an actual case of COVID. But as you also said, you know, there, there are differences. I, got a, I mentioned on social media, I got Rack and Yellow on today. Give me some questions to ask him. Uh, <laughs> and so a, a woman said, I'm triple vaccinated. She means vaccinated twice and then boosted. Uh, I never had any reaction to the shots. I'm 72. I'm worried that I never made any antibodies. Uh, I'm not asking you to pronounce specific on the specifics of her question, mm -hmm. but she's asking a question that a lot of people have. How do I know how much immunity I got from my vaccination sequence? Well, just judging by your, your effects at the vaccination site, that's not really good enough because many people we know don't have any side effects. They don't even have soreness at the site of injection. They don't have any fever. They don't have any headache, et cetera. 
and they make perfectly good immune responses. We know that from the clinical studies of the vaccines because those things were tracked. And there are certainly people who respond beautifully and have no side effects, right? So I wouldn't worry about that. Of course, the only way you know if you've responded is, would be to check. And we don't check people in general. When we give vaccines of any kind, whether it's measles or polio or influenza or COVID, we do not check to see if you've responded. And the fact is, when you give a vaccine to 100 people, not all 100 will make an immune response. That is a known fact. And it's kind of uh, a lottery, really, unless you want to go and buy yourself a at-home antibody test and look for antibodies, which doesn't tell you the whole story. So I would say if you have no symptoms at vaccination, that does not mean you didn't respond. On the other hand, there always are a fraction of people who don't. But somebody must have looked at that question, right? Some some of the investigators, that you read every paper in the world about this stuff. Somebody must have looked at a thousand people who got vaccinated and then checked to see whether yes. they were, they're seropositive, what percentage of them or, or whatever. As you say, that may not tell the whole story. So what are those studies to tell you? Well, I think the 90 percent... Um, you know, efficacy in the clinical trial of the vaccines reflected that in part, that maybe 10% of the people didn't respond for whatever reason. Um, in each study, yes, there were people who didn't make antibodies, there were people who didn't make T cells. And I would, I would, it, it depends on the vaccine, but for COVID, I'd say it's about 10%. And obviously, if your immune system, I'm just talking about somebody in my own life with, who's received pretty rigorous chemotherapy. I mean, chemotherapy, which actually punches out the lymphoblasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, in a situation like that, chances are, I mean, he's now been vaccinated three times. We have no idea whether he ever produced any immunity. But I mean, it's really less and less likely uh, if you have some underlying factor like that. Yeah, people like that who we know have compromised immune systems, we need to either check, and there have certainly been clinical studies of, say, transplant patients who are immunosuppressed to see how they do with vaccines. And, you know, a third dose gets some of them to respond, but not all of them. So that's one thing you could do is you could check or you could be vigilant. And at the first sign of sniffles or fever, you get them a, a test. And if they're positive, you give them monoclonal antibodies. Right. And that will that's really the solution. You just need to pay very, very close attention. So um, all of this uh, factors into what I believe is one of your least favorite words. As I say, I think I can detect irritation in your voice at certain times. I don't think you like the term <laughs> breakthrough very much, breakthrough infection. Uh, I mean, that's sort of become the term of art for people who are vaccinated and then uh, get infected. Tell me why. I mean, first of all, tell me if I'm right that you don't like that term. And then tell me how you would like people to understand that differently. So breakthrough the word has a connotation. It sounds like something is off, right? Mm-hmm. You're breaking through a wall that should have been impenetrable. And and especially in a pandemic where there's so much attention paid to the news, I think breakthrough conveys that the vaccines are not working. But in fact, as we have said a billion times on TWIB, most human vaccines do not prevent you from getting infected. They prevent you from getting sick. We had a guest on Friday who put it beautifully. Most human vaccines do not prevent you from being PCR positive, (laughs) which is a wonderful way to say it, even though PCR hasn't been used for most vaccines uh, until recently. So you get infected almost all the time. Now, and so that's not a breakthrough because it happens with everyone. Now, the problem is that 
we did the vaccine trials. We started to vaccinate people. And then in the first few months after the vaccination, yeah, infection was prevented because you have high antibody levels. But with time, naturally, the immune system contracts, the antibody levels go down. And yes, you can get infected, but the same thing happens for most viral vaccines. So that's why I don't think it's correct to call it a breakthrough because it implies something untoward. It's an infection. You're getting infected, but you are prevented from getting severe disease. So the vaccines work beautifully, no matter what vaccine you're talking about, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, they prevent severe disease and so do the COVID vaccines, despite us uh, getting infected. And and certainly, I mean, I, I think what happened also was that people who are inclined to doubt vaccines took some of this information and said, well, see, it doesn't really work if you can get. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, one thing that I've tried to point out to them is that I mean, the flu vaccines have a fluctuating level of effectiveness, but I think it averages out to about 56%. These mm-hmm. mRNA vaccines are doing way better than that. People don't typically say, well, don't get the flu vaccine. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work all the time. No, you're absolutely right. We're spoiled now. I mean, people are criticizing these vaccines, especially if they drop a little bit below 90%, right? Yeah. Say, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not working anymore. Come on. We, we licensed the polio vaccine that was 53% effective at preventing polio, and that was adequate for many, many years. So we're really lucky that these work so well. They still prevent severe disease. Yeah, you're going to get infected. You're going to get sniffles. Eventually, everyone's going to be infected at one point or another. The whole world will be immune, and this will be a common cold. So these days, Vincent, everybody, if I went to bars anymore, the guy down the bar would be a virologist. Everybody thinks they're a virologist. <laughs> so um, everybody wants to talk about BA2. Uh, this is a kind of a subvariant of, of Omicron. Um, obviously, once again, jury's out. We don't know that much. Um, what do you want to know about it? Uh, and how worried are you? I'm not, I have not been worried about any variant. This is my, um, I guess it's been my mantra because I don't like when people see something and react and get worried without any data. I say, I want the data. And unfortunately, as we said earlier, the data takes a while to get during a pandemic. And it may be not the kind of thing that you that's worthwhile because it takes too long. So I've always been suspect. Let's get the data. Let's see uh, if it is more transmissible or, or le- more or less virulent. I prefer to say that each, each variant is more fit. It outcompetes another. And why is it more fit? It's like the, it's like the finches on on uh, uh, Charlie's Island. There, you know, if you had a thick beak, you did well in areas where there were hard shelled uh, nuts and so forth. So fitness is a is a term that everyone gets. So, so why is this variant more fit? We still don't know for most of them. Now, for Omicron, it looks like it might be because it does a really good job at evading immunity, and that's what happens with influenza viruses. Every year, variants arise. They evade immunity, and that's why they're more fit. And in fact, nobody even mentions the transmissible word with respect to influenza. It's all about fitness and antigenic uh, evasiveness. So I think for Omicron, that's quite clear. Some of the earlier variants, the papers are just starting to come out. That's how long it takes. Uh, So I'm not worried about any subvariant. I think our immunity will always protect us uh, against severe disease, no matter what the variant uh, that arises. 
Right. So, I mean, uh, I'll ask you one more question, then I'll let, you're a busy man, I'll let you go. But, I mean, this has sort of caused people to – one of the blue sky scenarios here is that Omicron, because it seems to spread very quickly for whatever reason uh, and uh, is, is, is capable maybe of crowding out other variants and kind of taking over, so to speak, and that because at least in vaccinated and boosted people, it does not produce uh, severe symptoms most of the time. Um, this is all kind of a good thing that ultimately this becomes something which, I mean, if it's going to be Omicron and, and we can kind of stop it in its tracks, provided we're not stupid, <laughs> provided we, we get our vaccinations to keep up to date with boosters, uh, we're going to be reasonably OK here. Uh, I don't know. And, and so in, in that sense, Omicron might be kind of a gift. But m- maybe you think it's too early to say that. Well, I think it's quite clear that this pandemic will end. Right. There's no doubt about it. Look, we got out of 1918 flu pandemic and we didn't do anything. Maybe we had some face masks, but we had no vaccines. Right. And that ended on its own. So this one will end. It will end faster because we have vaccines and now we have antivirals. Uh, But as long as there are so many millions of people on the world where this virus can reproduce in, new variants will arise and they will spread. This virus has shown a remarkable ability to change and and push out its ancestors. And that's really the way to look at it. The implications for us are less clear, as we said earlier. So at some point, there will be so few people infected that the number of variants will decrease uh, and then we'll reach some kind of stasis. This virus is not going away. It's going to be here all the time. You know, it's in, it's in all kinds of wild animals, apparently. It's going to be in people. In the winter, it's probably going to cause outbreaks. It's going to be like another influenza virus, except possibly milder. So the the huge numbers that we see now are going to go away. They'll be replaced by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of infections and uh, probably far less mortality. All right. We have to stop here. It's been fascinating as usual. You're very generous with your time, Dr. Vincent Racaniello, uh, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia University, co-host of the podcast, This Week in Virology. You should be listening to this at minimum. Listen to the weekly clinical updates with Daniel Griffin because really one of the better and more solid and less insane and complicated. uh, You can figure out a lot of stuff from from listening to him and Dr. Griffin. Uh, All right. We have to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something a little bit less scary, which is psychological problems and whether books can help you with them. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So, one of the most famous uh, quotations uh, in the history of censorship, in the battle against censorship, came from Jimmy Walker, who eventually became uh, the mayor of New York City. I think he was a legislator at the time. He said, no woman was ever ruined by a book. Which is kind of a gendered observation, but let's set that aside. Uh, It was a different time. Uh, But this segment will ask the kind of reverse question. Could a person be healed by a book? Could a person be fixed by a book? Uh, And here to do that with us is Katria Bolger, uh, a a journalist who works for Future of Good, a digital publication based in Canada focused on social impact. She wrote the recent article, Textual Healing, good title, Textual Healing, the novel world of bibliotherapy for the walrus. Welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Good to be with you. So just sketch out the premise. The premise of bibliotherapy is what? So bibliotherapy is a practice that uses books to activate uh, healing, essentially. Um, it comes springs from the idea that books have curative potential. They can help us navigate our own life circumstances, particularly when they're challenging, as the past two years have been for so many people throughout this pandemic. So... Um, there's so many questions about this. I mean, in a way, it sort of intuitively seems that it could be true, right? That we can all think of books that we read that, you know, quote unquote, changed our lives or ultimately altered our perspectives of that. But it seems to be, you know, a, a, a process of serendipity. You happen to read the right, the right book at the right time, or for that matter, the wrong book at the wrong time, uh, and it affects you. This is sort of saying that you could be guided to to perspicacious choices of books, right? You could be guided to the right book and it might help you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is where a bibliotherapist can really come in. And uh, the folks that I talked to throughout this story really did want to emphasize that you don't have to be somebody who loves books in order to benefit from bibliotherapy. It really is um, for everybody, or at least worth a shot for anybody who's even mildly interested in what it has to offer. Um, But what a bibliotherapist can really do is just sort of actively have you engage with a book in a way that allows you to explore uh, your own inner worlds uh, more deeply and give you prompts and questions, sort of prod you along that journey of whatever it is you want to learn more about yourself or perhaps improve about yourself. This is where a bibliotherapist can really come in and sort of be that uh, guiding light. Right. We'll give some examples in a second. Well, we know from some other clinical studies uh, from a few years ago, there was a highly publicized study that indicated that reading fiction, reading fiction, uh, increased empathy, that there was some Mm -hmm. kind of connection between uh, consuming a novel or a a bunch of short stories Mm -hmm. and, and appreciating the conditions of other people, which, again, would make sense, right? When you read a novel, it, it basically is saying everybody has a story. 
Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I, when you read a book, uh, you uh, live in somebody's head or uh, you sort of inhabit their circumstances. So through those experiences of, of, of seeing their perspective and seeing what they're up against and whatever plots or challenges are overcoming in a novel, um, you too can sort of learn to live through those experiences and empathize in the process. And interestingly, um, other studies have indicated that fiction, reading fiction, can sort of fire up the same neural networks um, that are activated when we experience emotional shifts in real life. So all that is to say that when we read fiction, um, we are living out some sort of simulation of reality, uh, which uh, in some ways can allow us to change uh, our orientation towards uh, reality, the way we see or experience things um, in real life. Right. We know there's some basically almost biomechanical benefits here. I think you cite uh, the Yale study that indicated that uh, deep, close reading of, of fiction may add as many as two years on to the lifespan span of a person. And um, there was one in Stanford that I read about that actually showed that paying attention to literary texts uh, can actually increase significantly blood flow uh, during close reading. This is they did fMRI studies of participants reading a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> so I mean, we can look at sort of just the physiology of this, and and there's some pretty promising things. But what we're talking about here with bibliotherapy is a little bit different. So so give me an example. I mean, doctor, I, I'm I'm really depressed. <laughs> what should I read? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I sort of went in with a similar question when I approached sources for this story. And what I really learned that it's it's an intensely um, individualized, personalized process uh, of going to see a bibliotherapist. So for most bibliotherapists, they won't have a stack of books organized um, around particular categories, be they uh, isolation, depression, family issues. It's very much about getting to know the individual, what motivates them to come to the session in the first place, what their interest reading are, down to the very genres that they're interested in from fiction to nonfiction to self-help. So it really varies depending on the um, individual. And for the person who I spoke to in my story, um, and she uh, specifically mentioned um, how the beginning of lockdown was just a really tough, isolating time when she had to confront some um, issues that had been sort of buried for a really long time and the pandemic sort of threw them out in the open for her. Um, and so she cited a couple of books, which I some titles which I found were um, interesting. Anna Karenina, for one, the great Leo Tolstoy novel about a Russian socialite. She talked about how she identified with that character's um, strengths, but also the sort of social pushback that, that she got. Um, other books she mentioned were uh, Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons, Lady Macbeth of Mysensk, uh, which is a Russian uh, novella, but sort of uh, all these books pointed her towards this realization of uh, um, that she felt very trapped in a lot of her social relationships. And through those storylines, she was able to sort of liberate herself from um, uh, from some of those situations she was facing in, in real life. Um, but other examples I might mention, um, when I was reading about the use of uh, books in hospitals to treat soldiers in World War One, Jane Eyre was a highly common prescription. Um, another one that comes to mind uh, because it's a book that I really enjoyed as a child was Bridge to Terabithia, uh, which um, uh, the bibliotherapist that I spoke to in my story, Dr. Hoi Chu, uh, mentioned that this was something that he would recommend to young people who were dealing with grief. Um, so again, it really comes down to the individual. Um, which is why one should see a bibliotherapist uh, should they be interested um, in finding out more. 
Right. I mean, you know, from a sort of a rough perspective, my reaction to, you know, the idea that Anna Karenina would make you feel better about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a really good book about feeling trapped. It's not necessarily a book that makes you feel better about life by the end, but that's why I'm not a licensed bibliotherapist. So let's just talk about that for a second. I mean, we're talking about this. I don't know. Uh, I live here in the United States. I mean, is there such a thing as a bibliotherapist? Is it? It's. I assume this is a, a kind of a nascent field. Field, right? This is not one where you can go get your license. Uh, I wouldn't say it's nascent, but it is still relatively niche. Uh, you're right on that, and um, it is. It is. Um, it's harder in North America, and my story I look largely at the Canadian context, but there are some parallels with the American t- context as well. Um, that you would have to go through an international uh, organization, so the International Federation for Biblio and Poetry Therapy, uh, to gain your certification. And what this involves is uh, taking courses in literature, psychology, uh, just to arm you with the tools to. Um, uh, to be in that role of a bibliotherapist. Um, the UK has a lot more uh, training and resources for uh, bibliotherapy, even though the practice itself was first traced back to the United States. Um, so yes, it's it's not a, a, an easy path necessarily, or the most accessible path, depending on what context you're coming from. Um, and I should also emphasize that if uh, a bibliotherapist is to use bibliotherapy in a clinical setting, which is to say one-on-one, um, you know, drawing from more of the principles of psychoanalysis, then they would be required to have training in psychology uh, therapy as well. So the source that I that I profiled, the bibliotherapist had a background in marriage and, and counseling therapy. Uh, so to deal with those sort of more uh, challenging cases of mental illness, it would require uh, some training in that uh, in that field. All right. This is an interesting area, perhaps to be continued. But for now, Katria Bulger, uh, a journalist who works for Future of Good and who wrote the recent article, Textual Healing, the Novel World of Bibliotherapy for the Walrus. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Colin. My pleasure. Have a good one. And we're going to move from books to football in the next segment and to coin tosses in particular. Well, she just met a man. She likes more than her husband. And I feel like he is going to make us sad. Well, they're all hanging out, shaking hands at the station when a train rolls over a peasant. And I could be wrong. It feels like foreshadowing And she's in for something unpleasant And I wish that I could walk into the pages And tell her how wrong it all goes But this feeling I have about Anna I feel like she All right, so uh, time to thank people, especially Kat Pastor, our technical producer uh, and senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, who's also the producer of this particular episode. So people who listen to this show a lot may know that since 1971, I've been a very, very passionate fan of the Green Bay Packers, which is why. So I should say that I'm not doing the show from my regular studios. I'm actually being treated for post-Packer playoff traumatic stress disorder, PPVTSD. Uh, I'm at the Lynn Dickey Center, which is a, very, a recovery center. Uh, they don't they don't let us watch any more football this weekend. Uh, it's kind of like the World Series and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. They just think not, not a good thing for us to watch. Uh, so I did not see last night's uh, game. <laughs> 
against between the Kansas City Chiefs uh, and the Buffalo uh, Bills. But I, I know that it was the greatest game in the history of football, and and so my my humiliation and sense of loss is compounded because not only did the Packers lose, I didn't see this game. And so what we're about to talk to. Uh, talk about next with Josh Levine is not really what he wants to talk about. He is, he's been with us before. He's Slate's national editor and co-host of the excellent sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, uh, and also the host of the podcast, One Year 1995. Uh, But we're going to make him talk about it anyway. So, uh, Josh, welcome back. I know that you think that we should focus on just the the almost, you know, Homeric, Iliad-like exquisiteness uh, of the battle that took place between these two teams last night that just had all this almost kind of unprecedented last-minute uh, heroics and counter-heroics. But what everybody's bitching about this morning is the coin toss. So we're going to make you talk about it. Uh, so, first of all, welcome back. Well, thank you. And clearly you're in a very tenuous mental state. So anything you want to talk about, I'm, I'm so just gonna, fragile. I'm, I'm just going to roll with whatever, <laughs> whatever you want. I don't want to stress you or push you too much. Okay. Well, then in that case, what's wrong with Aaron Rodgers? Why is he such a jerk? <laughs> All right. No, my doctor told me not to talk to you about that. So, so yeah, let's just focus a little bit on this. So, you know, years ago, probably before your time, uh, the uh, great lineman Alex Karras used to complain about the fact that these you know, giant men would slug something out for, you know, for, for 60 minutes uh, of regulation time, these, this huge battle of muscle and sinew and blood. And then, in, in his view, a 128-pound kicker like Garrow Yepremian would come on the field and, and end it. Uh, according to Alex saying, I'm going to kick a touchdown. I'm going to kick a touchdown. So now it's not even a field goal that we're complaining about, right? We're talking about a a battle that ends in a tie at the end of regulation. Uh, And for people who don't follow this that carefully, explain what happens then. Yeah. So in the NFL, what the rule is, um, is that the first team that gets possession and overtime possession being decided by a coin flip gets to end the game by scoring a touchdown. If they do not score a touchdown, if they get a field goal or don't score at all, then the game continues. And then the next team that scores, the first team that scores in overtime wins. But there is this one-off opportunity that the coin toss winner gets to go down the fields um, and prevent the opposing team, the opposing quarterback from even getting an opportunity to take the field. And that's what happened in Kansas City on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs offense rendered the Bills uh, defense uh, useless as they had done much much of the game and also rendered the Bills offense uh, useless. And Josh Allen, the great Buffalo quarterback, had no opportunity to do what he'd done throughout the game and in the fourth quarter in particular, which is match Mahomes blow for blow. We were denied that as fans. And uh, one of the many ironies here is that apparently Josh Allen, uh, through some Faustian bargain possibly, had had an incredible string of accurate coin toss predictions. He's like the guy you want out there uh, saying heads or tails. And that at this particular moment, this kind of epic moment in the history of football, I, I believe that ability deserted him. Yeah, he'd gone 9-0 and during the regular season and went 0-2 in this game. Colin, why don't you guess? Uh, I'm assuming you don't know what. What do you think Josh Allen guessed in, in overtime? I think he guessed tails. I think he guessed tails. He guessed tails. So you too lost the game. You, <laughs> you, you also blew it. It was the one bad call that he made all night. I mean, it's funny that Josh Allen in the previous week against the Patriots had a per- a literal perfect game every time they had the ball, except when they kneeled down at the very end of the game, they scored a touchdown. 
Um, and in this game, he was almost actually better than he was in, in that game. Just some unbelievable feats of just like daring with his feet and threw four touchdown passes to the same receiver, Gabriel Davis. And, and in the end, he gets undone by the tails. Should have gone with heads. So as you put it out in your excellent piece, uh, every single website in, on the Internet right now is decrying this, uh, this problem of the coin toss. Well, what could be done about it? And there was, let's, decide, let's say that we, we do decide that this just makes a mockery of human effort. The notion that, you know, that, that Josh Allen and his offense doesn't get to step out on the field for no other reason than the loss of a coin toss. That's a mockery uh, of human effort and ability. How would we fix it? So this was a half measure. I mean, the old rule was that uh, you could just go down and get a field goal and in the game. And so the powers that be said, well, that's not right. You should have to go and get a touchdown. We got to get the your premiums out of, out of this and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, breach the, uh, the end zone. And then you will have won the game rightfully. And now I think what the fix is going to be, what the NFL is probably going to do is say, if you score a touchdown, then we'll give Josh Allen, Buffalo, or whoever else the chance to match it. And then we'll go on from there. That seems like an obvious and easy fix. I mean, there are more, uh, there are different approaches. There's the college football overtime, which involves just giving each offense the ball on the 25 yard line, basically taking kicking, uh, punting at least out of overtime entirely and having them match each other over and over and over again, just starting at the 25 yard line, which is a totally different and distorted version of football that people have a lot of um, beef with. There's also more esoteric ideas around doing an auction process where the teams could bid about where they get the ball to start overtime, which is an interesting idea. You can get a lot of economists who have different ideas about how you should do the bids. And so, you know, depending on what uh, the NFL wants to do and how far out they want to get, they could implement any manner of things, but just the ability to match, even if it's a touchdown on the first drive, just seems like a pretty easy, straightforward fix. Right. I'm actually uh, proposing that everybody in the stadium should be able to engage in ranked choice voting about uh, who should get the ball for first. I mean, these these things seem unnecessarily complicated. It does seem like the pretty easy thing to do is to say, all right, you scored a touchdown. You do what everybody does when they score a touchdown. You kick off to the other team uh, and let's see what they do. And, and they'll have that one possession. I, I don't even understand why that's, you know, why that's any big lift at all. It would seem like a pretty easy thing to do. So well, the interesting yeah. thing, though, is that the same thing happened. Uh, the Chiefs now have had a four-year streak of making the AFC Championship game with uh, Mahomes. The first time that that happened, they lost to the Patriots in the exact inverse of this scenario where the Patriots and Tom Brady got the ball, drove down, and scored. And the Chiefs argued after that game, understandably, they put a proposal to the NFL Competition Committee and said, let's change this overtime rule. And they didn't even vote on it because it was considered like, you know, I don't know if there was considered sour grapes. Or there just wasn't any particular interest in it. And so the irony is if the Chiefs had been successful at that point, maybe they would have lost this game. <laughs> All right. So we've got about three minutes left, and I'm going to actually break my own rule and, and just shift gears here for a second uh, and, and say, you know, I mean, setting my allegiances aside, the, the, the plight of Aaron Rodgers is a really interesting one, one that we don't, you know, there are too many precedents for this. This is a guy who's done a lot to alienate the fan base uh, of his, in his own community by not even really starting the preseason with the Packers, holding out, saying maybe he wanted to leave right then, then put together this, you know, incomparable season 
season, which will probably result in another MVP because they don't include your playoff meltdown <laughs> in the MVP voting. And and now you have this guy who's he's circulated all this horrible, toxic, Joe Rogan-derived anti-vax rhetoric, uh, and he's in a situation where his team may be looking to get rid of him. And to me, Josh, and this is what I'd love to hear you weigh in on, I've always seen Rodgers as a guy who really imagined his post-football life to include this kind of supra-football uh, reputation where he would either be able to host Jeopardy or just be kind of famous in a way that wasn't 100% dependent on football. And it seems like through his own doing, he's kind of backed himself into the opposite kind of corner where he's not going to be the kind of celebrity he thought he was going to be. Well, he's a guy, and I'm curious for your take on this because you've been following his career and pronouncements very closely for a very long time. Just struck me as a guy who's always thought that he's smarter than everyone else. And in a lot of cases, I think in the football context, he's been right. Like he was right and everyone was wrong when they passed on him in the first round when he was drafted. When you even listen to him after the game um, this weekend and his press conference, he was pretty astute and self-flagellating about what happened on the field, didn't blame other people, talked about failings of his own performance. I mean, the way he's able to read the field is generally one of his strengths. And I, I think in the case of his off football pronouncements about vaccines and science, stuff that he doesn't know anything about, his view that he's smarter than everyone else has been his undoing. But it doesn't strike me that he'll think, um, you know, given all the backlash that he's gotten, that he's dumb. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's going to change his view. He's going to maintain the idea that he's knows more and is smarter than everyone about everything. And if the consequence of that is that his opinion, public opinion of him is lower, he's going to blame the public, not himself. Right. And that's because we also, we're going to have to wrap here, but I think we live in a country where nobody ever has to think that they're dumb anymore because you can find somebody else. I mean, if you're Aaron Rodgers and people are making you feel dumb, you can go and put your head in Joe Rogan's lap, you know, and and he'll scratch you behind the ears and say, no, you're not dumb at all. You've really got this. And I'm Joe Rogan and I'm important. And I, I confirm that. And uh, <laughs> And that's sort of the- when, the, when the quote unquote smart football fan saw him on Jeopardy and he's a guy who can be eloquent and in a lot of different contexts. I think we know so little about these players, these like athletic heroes, that that was enough to um, kind of mark him as being a smart and sophisticated and philosophical guy. And he's just systematically dismantled that, <laughs> that perception all year long. All right, Josh, we got to go. Josh Levine, I'm going to listen to Hang Up and Listen. You bet I am. Uh, I want to hear what you guys say about this past weekend, particularly here at the Dickey Center, where we don't really know too much about what happened last weekend after Saturday night. Heads I win, tells you lose. Heads I win.